Welcome to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm Stephen Spitz. On today's show, in a landmark 2018 decision, the court in Yazi Martinez held that New Mexico was violating the rights of students to an education sufficient to prepare them for a career or college. Leading the way for plaintiffs have been Native American rights groups, and today we are joined by Regis Pecos, Chair of the Tribal Education Alliance. Regis Pecos, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. I really welcome this opportunity and would like to start with a bit about your background, then talk about Yazzie, including whether there's been progress since 2018, and finally touch on our new AG's criticism of that progress and his announced intention to take over representation of the state. So for starters, you are chair of the Tribal Education Alliance. What exactly is that? The Tribal Education Alliance, Steve, is the coalition of the 19 Pueblos, the Hickoria Apache tribe, the Muscalero Apache tribe, and Navajo Nation. And that coalition evolved as a result of the Leadership Institute, which I co-founded 28 years ago and I co-direct, was relegated by the All Pueblo Council of Governors to facilitate discussions regarding this landmark case. And out of that process, having facilitated discussions with all 22 sovereign nations, the sustainability of of that advocacy on behalf of the children of those 22 nations resulted in the formalization of the Tribal Education Alliance, which I have had the honor of chairing the last uh, five years. So that makes it pretty evident that Yasi has been viewed as a significant decision by you. Why is that? Steve, context is, is important. Nearly 150 years ago, the federal government first articulated an Indian education policy built on the mantra, unfortunately, weaponizing education as a process of assimilation. It was built on the mantra that the way you kill language and the way you kill culture is to remove children from their language and culture and deny those children their language and culture. That's nearly 150 years ago, with many generations subjected to the whole boarding school trauma inflicted in the name of education and using education as a process of assimilation. In 2018, in the Yazzie Martinez case, that is now referred to as a landmark decision. It is important to understand that over that course of history, little has changed when you are subjected to the same Western education models built in public education for a monolingual society, for a monocultural society, which results in diminishing the place of language and culture, in this case to indigenous children of this state, to be totally not part of that vision. So uh, you know, I find your answer really interesting in terms of your own life. Okay, so you are born in Cochiti Pueblo, 
and you end up with an education at Princeton. I think you go on after Princeton. Someone might think from what you just said that you don't think Western education is important, but obviously in your life, you think it is important. Elders in a community teach us that you have to give equal value to language and culture that defines who you are, that defines your purpose in life. But they also teach us that the white man's education is equally important to develop the skills and the tools with which you can contribute to your community, the larger Indian community, in protecting the live ways of indigenous peoples. So that kind of teaching I have followed throughout my life, and it's one that necessarily compels us to seek balance, to give equal value to language and culture, and to also appreciate Western education as the means by which you develop tools and skills to protect what you love most about who you are. Another aspect of of what you've done that I find really interesting, and it seems to meld these two things, are these education programs that I read about. One is an association with Harvard and Princeton, and I think takes high school, native high school students, and introduces them to those programs. Could you just tell me a little bit about that that program? That program that, that you just described is a program under the Leadership Institute that is an indigenous think tank that I co-founded and I co-direct. Under that Leadership Institute is what is called the Summer Policy Academy that provides an opportunity for high school sophomores and juniors and sometimes seniors want to have an opportunity to give a very rigorous, very intense focus in understanding the history of policies and laws of the state, of the federal government, and how those policies and laws impact language, land, family, community, governance, indigenous customary laws, environmental protection, um, all of the things that are a very critical part of sustaining a way of life for indigenous peoples. We founded that program largely as a realization of our own lived experience that very little of that kind of history so important to us as indigenous peoples are not at all part of the public education system. So that is just one example of many that education advocates have created outside of the public education system, realizing and appreciating that if we don't do that in very intentional ways, young people who eventually become our caretakers, eventually become leaders of our sovereign nations, will have a very significant part of what they should know, not within the realm of their consciousness. And so we take young people to places like Princeton to have the opportunity to study in one of the most prominent education institutions to underscore and appreciate that they belong in these places. But it is very much driven by first deeply embedding 
indigenous core values so that they understand how they can never deviate from who they are, even in these places of Western education, some of the best opportunities in this nation and in the world to find that balance. So I'm seeing a pattern here in your life, in this program, and what you described to begin with, which is sort of preserving and maintaining cultural traditions, but combining that with an appreciation for Western education. Absolutely necessary, Steve. And that is at the very heart of the advocacy and our engagement in this landmark Yazi Martinez decision. Because when you have lived through the waves of government-sanctioned policies and laws deliberately designed to kill language and culture as a process of assimilation, that is at the very heart of who we are. It is at the heart of maintaining and sustaining the oldest governance systems, institutions that predates the United States. And as our elders teach us, when language and culture die, that is the end of us. So it is a compelling time that do that we do what is necessary in light of the state court of New Mexico concluding that language and culture is an important part of a relevant education, in this case for indigenous children, linguistic and culturally appropriate strategies for those English learners, that when systems and institutions fail, they create a category of children defined to be at risk. And of course, without those kind of culturally linguistic appropriate approaches, For children with special needs, when you fail to meet those very fundamental needs in that manner with a balanced approach, you find yourself in a crisis as we find ourselves in New Mexico. So uh, that that is a wonderful description of Yazi. And I want to pick up on it in a second, but let me mention first that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas. I'm very pleased to be in the studio with Regis Pecos, a friend of mine who I met when we were working on the early childhood education constitutional amendment. So, Regis, I, you, you've just done a good job of summarizing, I think, what Yazi was all about. And Yazi kind of used statutes like the Indian Education Act, which I believe you were an expert witness in that case on that act. And what I'd like to ask you about is, you know, it's been five years since 2018. And I think what listeners would like to know is what's happened since. And you've mentioned these five, these four classes, uh, Native Americans, low-income students, uh, English learners, and disabled students. And Native Americans actually fit. There are substantial numbers in all those classes. So my question is, and, and this is a way overbroad, unfair question, but How do you evaluate what PED has been doing to satisfy Yazi since 2018? You know, Steve, it's it's really unfortunate where we are today. And I don't fault the the people who are in these capacities, uh, the current superintendent, the current assistant secretary of Indian education, because they have come into 
a set of circumstances that I wish was a different history in the last five years. But when you have had the kind of turnover that in the last four years to have as many secretaries of education come and go. Five and four years? Yes. And when you have seen the departure of the next line of leadership in that department with deputy secretaries, I believe that the, the attorneys for uh, both Yazzie and Martinez who conducted depositions of nearly 20 high-ranking leaders in the public education department as the court provided that opportunity, I believe that their last report, literally here in the last week, is that as many as 17 or 18 of those deposed are no longer there. And so the unfortunate reality of these circumstances is that it's been very frustrating because as we have engaged with the good will and the good faith efforts of previous secretaries of the department, uh, the frustrating part is that this is a complex issue, that there are no immediate quick fixes. This is a process that is going to take many years in developing new systems and institutions. It is a long-term investment, uh, as, as the judge concluded, the Honorable Late uh, Judge Sarah Singleton, that it is necessary to create new systems and institutions and to invest money in the same systems and institutions is really not going to move us forward because it is investing in the very systems and institutions that were indicted in this landmark case. Now, many people will refer to where we are today as a development over many, many years as a result, not my words, Steve, but the words of many, that it is the result of a very long history of systemic and institutional racism. And so back to the answer, the simple answer to your question is, I wish we were further along, but we're not. We have a very long ways to go. So when, when I look at the PED w website, I mean, they're saying all the right things. There's like when it comes to the uh, Indian Education Act, they're talking about involving tribal communities, involving tribal communities and equity groups, making sure there's equity. They say there it's important for native languages to be preserved. And I I mention these things because I mean the Indian Education Act, for example, is pretty specific, and they say they're doing it. I mean they say they're doing the same things with regard to English language learners, with regard to multiculturalism for Hispanic people. They say they're doing all these things, and they say there's been a lot of progress. So, where is the disconnect? Why, why isn't this? I guess you're saying it's not translating at the ground level. So why isn't it, or is it to some extent? You just pinpointed, um, Steve, what the fundamental problem and challenge is, and that is how do we align the findings of fact, the conclusions of law, of over 600 pages that we have painstakingly sifted through to develop a matrix of appreciating 
what we have to address, where monies have got to be invested, what are the inputs to create for the kind of desirable outputs in this process. And one of the unfortunate realities is that when you have people coming and going, there is a total disconnect. I don't doubt for one minute the, the depth of the passion and the knowledge of people who have been appointed to these capacities to lead the effort. But if they're only going to stay for short periods of time, it's not resulting in the kind of cooperative and collaborative effort between those vested with leading the effort in the public education department to bring to the table plaintiffs in our case, Native educators and advocates who are the experts that they should rely on knowing. Steve, one of the saddest facts that reflects the la lack of investment in something so critical in education that we've known for 50 years in the 1969 Kennedy Report, Congressional hearings conducted across the country revealed and documented that there was less than 2% of all teachers teaching Native children who were Native. Fifty years later, in Yazzie Martinez, it's well documented that only 3%, maybe a little above 3% of all teachers in public schools in New Mexico teaching Native children are native, which means and translates into the reality that for the majority of indigenous children, they will never see a native teacher in the classroom. So these are very fundamental facts, but when there is not an alignment with regard to all of us collaborating in ways that result in the kind of inputs that drive the outputs, there are some very fundamental elements of misalignment. So I want to just ask you one more question about this, but let me first mention that this is New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas, and my name is Stephen Spitz, and I'm talking with Regis Pecos today, and Regis was an expert witness in the Yazi case, obviously follows it very closely. And Regis, just when I look at this and when I look at the, the court papers, to the, I mean, you are much more up on this than I am. But it, it seems to me like what is lacking from the state is actually taking responsibility for making it happen. I mean, there needs to be a step-by-step -step action plan. Like, what exactly does the state have to do? And instead, it seems to me, what the state is saying, well, the problem's in the districts. The districts aren't, the school districts aren't complying. Go after the school districts. It's not our problem. But the order, the decision was against the state. Steve, um, that's, that's an actual portraying of the framework and the challenge. And in the Martinez administration, which is the administration that uh, was central in this case, not the uh, Michelle Lujan Grisham administration, it is exactly those points that the Martinez administration um, and the public education department were arguing, unconscionable that the state of education that results in the lowest attainment nationally 
ranking 50th, that manifest into poverty among the highest in the nation, that manifest into hunger, the highest in the nation, that manifest in health disparities among the highest in the nation, cycles of violence among the highest, and ultimately youth suicide and Native American suicide among the highest. And yet they were arguing that there is sufficient resources being provided by the state and it is the fault of the students, it is the fault of the parents not having interest in the education of their children, it is the fault of the teachers in those districts, it is the fault for the lack of leadership of local school boards and educational leaders. How unconscionable is that kind of argument? And that was under the Martinez administration. So I, I, I'm really glad you brought this up because it, to me it raises what I call the billion-dollar question, which is, you know, in response to Yazzie, the legislature has actually dramatically increased funding. It's, it's a, in the order of magnitude of a billion dollars. Uh, and it's about, it's about a 40% increase. So given that, and given the good faith, say, of the PED people, I guess it comes back to the same question. Why isn't this happening? And is it just, you just can't change an educational system by, you know, hoping it happens, saying you'd like it to happen? I mean, where is the disconnect? Steve, that, that is a very important question to the reality of where we are and how we move forward. One of the institutions that has not taken responsibility for this crisis, as reflected by the glaring lack of the human capital with teachers, with educational leaders, with nurses, with social workers, with behavior health personnel, to provide for a comprehensive wraparound of service for vulnerable children that are becoming the majority in public schools is higher education. When higher education does not prioritize investment in producing the human capital that I just mentioned, then it, it has contributed to creating the crisis when APS cannot fill 100 vacancies. Imagine what that means in some of the most remote rural geographic areas of our state where housing is not available, where you might have to drive an hour or an hour and a half, how difficult it is to maintain a stable education leadership mass to help effectuate the desires that we all want to see in our children doing well in school. And so while it is absolutely true, Steve, that the legislature has invested literally millions and millions and millions of dollars, but it has invested in the same systems and institutions because there is absent the very fundamental ask of the plaintiffs since the very beginning, and that is for the state to produce a comprehensive education plan to help guide policy, design of much-needed programs, to drive appropriations, what this results in a reality, Steve, is like building a house without a blueprint. So I have a theory about that. And uh, 
it's it, it's it's pretty simple. I think the the Secretary of Education is not leading the litigation. The governor he, he disclaims it. The governor is obviously leading, directing the litigation, and the governor knows what you said at the beginning of the show that the PED is it's understaffed. They've had five leaders in four years. She knows that if they were to put on the table a comprehensive step-by-step plan, says here are, here are all the ways to get more teachers, get more nurses. Here are the ways that the districts must implement the Indian Education Act. Here's the way English learners must have involved how many hours a day, who should be involved with the English lang- language learner, et cetera, et cetera. If she were to do that, she knows that it would fail, that the, you know, it's 25, the department's 25% understaffed, that constant turnover. She doesn't want it to fail publicly. That would be on her. So she doesn't want a step-by-step comprehensive plan, the plan you're asking for. Now, you don't have to agree with my theory, but I got I to gotta ask you, what do you think? You know, I've known this governor on a very personal level. We started state government, public service, about the same time when I was the director of the State Office of Indian Affairs, and she was right next door in the old Rivera building leading the state agency on aging. I have worked with her closely in her capacities as a cabinet secretary. I have worked with her at the congressional level. And and it's really perplexing that we're not able to do the same thing on such an important issue that is about all of us here in New Mexico. So, Regis, we're nearing the end of the show, and I want to ask you finally about a recent development, which could have, I think, a major impact on the case. Our newer uh, Attorney General, Raul Torres, I believe he met with Native American groups. I believe he's met with plaintiff's attorneys, and he has characterized uh, the progress in the case much like you did, as slow. Uh, He has said he wants a concrete timeline. And I guess my question is, you know, am I, am I too optimistic? <laughs> Could this really make a difference in education in, in New Mexico? You know, I started off with a historical context. And so we've been through many challenges. And I've been through incredible opportunities to address and resolve complex issues of mutual concern. So even as the challenge is what it is today, I will always be optimistic. And with the potential entrance of the attorney general in this case on behalf of the state, my greatest desire would be to see not another legal fight over whether or not he has the statutory authority to represent the state. My optimism and desire would be that this helps to constructively force a dialogue between the executive with the Office of Attorney General, with the plaintiffs being brought to the table, my hope is that it can result. And it would be unfortunate that it is going to be another legal fight and the very plaintiffs on behalf of the children are pawns in another legal battle. 
that would be the saddest reflection uh, if we can use this opportunity to bring everybody together to collaboratively move forward together. We're going to have to leave it there. I would like to thank today's guest, Regis Pecos. He is chair of the Tribal Education Alliance. Thanks also to my producers, Gustafoya and Roman Garcia. The executive producer of this show is Lynn Chebecki, and my name is Stephen Spitz. You've been listening to New Mexico People, Places, and Ideas on KUNM. Podcasts of this show are available wherever you get podcasts. Search Stephen Spitz. Archives of past shows are at stephenspitz.com. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.